So when you imagine the kingdom of Israel, what do you think about? Do you think about Saul seated underneath the tamarisk tree, terrified that the kingdom is slipping through his fingers? Do you think about David, the warrior king, wandering the barren wastelands with a crew of social outcasts? Do you think about villages caught in the political tempest of Saul's jealous rage? What do you think about when you imagine ancient Israel? Do you know what I think about? I think about the people meditating on the promises. Israel is unique among the many ancient nations, in part because their history was punctuated with the promises of God. I will make you a people. I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey. I will raise from your offspring many kings and many nations. I am sending a king to deliver you from your enemies. I am sending a prophet like Moses. Listen to him. And when I imagine the ancient king of Israel, the ancient kingdom of Israel, I think about the people. The shepherds and the carpenters and the soldiers and their wives and sons and daughters. The faithful children of Abraham who were always searching the horizon for the promised Messiah. The prophecies of a coming king must have always been on their mind. I mean, if you were promised rescue by a king who reigned with the mighty arm of God, wouldn't that promise haunt you in a way? Wouldn't you always be wondering whether the king who was promised had arrived? If you'd been told of a great prophet leader like Moses who would restore God's people and establish God's kingdom on earth, don't you think the edge of your seat would be worn with anticipation? Because that's the situation of the ancient kingdom of Israel. So when David cries out against Goliath and shouts praise while rushing the battlefield, the faithful of Israel paid attention. And when he faithfully led them over and over again to victory against their oppressors by the might of God, the faithful of Israel were stirred to hope. And as Saul's idolatrous kingdom began to crumble underneath him, while young David eluded his grasp, the faithful of Israel must have been nearly certain this must be the promised Messiah come to redeem the people of God. That's what I imagine when I think about the ancient kingdom of Israel. I imagine the faithful shepherds and merchants and farmers scanning the horizon in hope. And I imagine them asking whether David was the great king to come, whether David was the prophet like Moses, whether David truly was the promised Messiah. This book that we've been reading is written to answer that question. Is David the promised Messiah? That's the central question around which every episode of this story revolves. Was David the promised Messiah? No, he wasn't. But he was like him. For a while now, we focused on passages that foreshadow the work and words of Jesus. Because David is a lot like the promised Messiah. David moves in the might of God. David is filled with the Spirit of God. 
David hopes in the promises of God. David rescues the people of God. In these ways, David is like the promised Messiah. But recently, we've begun to to detect a shift in the structure of the book. And we've seen signs that the author is shifting our attention. We see glimpses of David's sin, of his pride, of his violence. We're beginning to discover that David is not the promised Messiah. The passage we're reading today is remarkable because in just a few paragraphs and a handful of subtle expressions, we're taught that David is not the Messiah. Like Saul, David wrestles with his sinful flesh. Like Saul, David is tempted to stray outside the boundaries of the covenant. And in these ways, David's not like the Messiah. Have you ever heard of Pompeii Micronesia? Anybody? Raise your hand if you've... There's a good handful. Um, it's not a hugely popular terrorist, or terrorist, pff, terrorist destination, or tourist destination, for that matter. <laughs> uh, Pompeii is a uh, small island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with about 35,000 islanders residing on it. Um, I was invited to go, and I went. As it turns out... Flying to Pompeii is not like flying to Phoenix, Arizona. Totally different. Um, Apparently, you can fly straight to Hawaii, or you can fly straight to Guam, but you can't fly straight to Pompeii. If you want to go anywhere in the middle of Guam and Hawaii, you have to hop on uh, what is called a puddle jumper. Um, And it's exactly what you're thinking of. Um, So basically, you hop on this plane and you skip over several thousand miles of ocean. And then you take brief stops, literally bus stops, at every single atoll and satellite installation and military installation all the way until you finally get to wherever you're going. Um, And it actually was kind of fun. I mean, it was a little weird, but it was kind of fun. That's kind of what we're doing in the scriptures today. Um, What we have to do to sort of grasp the meaning of this passage, we have to take pit stops at five different locations. Um, So what I want you to do is I want you to be patient with me as we sort of skip over large segments of Israel's history And then zone in on a few specific passages. Because those passages are going to become pretty important to understand the meaning of 1 Samuel 27. Which is where we're going to land. So uh, let's get to it. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 20. So before we start reading, it might be helpful to remember a few things. First, the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt when God moved miraculously to rescue them and to lead them to a land that He had promised them hundreds of years beforehand. It's also helpful to remember that the land itself, when the people of Israel arrived, was occupied by other nations. And not just any nations, these nations were wicked. They slaughtered infants to appease their gods. They worshipped their idols in orgies and drunkenness. And they were ruthless enemies, oppressing everyone around them. 
Now, God gave these nations over 400 years to repent, to turn from their wicked ways, but they refused. So after this season was up, God commanded His people, led by Joshua, to destroy these wicked nations. Now, if you've studied anything of the ancient worlds, you know that war was commonplace. And that all the nations everywhere kind of expected to go to war regularly. There's actually a passage in the Old Testament that says, in the spring, when the kings go to war, right? So Israel, too, engaged in war with hostile nations. Now, God cared for his people deeply. And one aspect of this care was to give them very specific instructions about how to go to war well. And that's what we're about to read. If you're in Deuteronomy 20, let's begin reading together in verse 10. I got it up on the screen if you'd like to read with me. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it, goes, and it, and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword, but the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourself. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. I want to repeat that one sentence. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in these cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Parasites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all of their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. What I want you to notice from this passage is there was two approaches to war. One approach for cities far from the land, and another very different approach to cities within the land. For cities far away, the people of Israel were mandated to offer terms of peace before engaging in battle. And if that city agreed to these terms, the people of Israel were actually not permitted to harm them. Such was not the case for the peoples who dwelt within the promised land. These were wicked nations saturated with infectious idolatry. And God mandated that everything that lived and breathed in these cities would be destroyed. This was a measure of wrath and it was a measure of protection. On the one hand, the wrath of God had been building up for centuries as these people hated and murdered and pursued every sort of evil. And after offering opportunity to repent for over 400 years, God's judgment has risen up against everything that lived and breathed in this land. Now, it's important to notice, I think, that this decree of instruction, of destruction, applied even to the livestock of these people. 
Because God's work in judgment was meant to teach the people of Israel that they will never prosper through idolatry. God is actively teaching the people that idolatry will ruin them and will ruin their people and will leave them destitute. And that is actually what happens to them because they don't listen. So they weren't allowed to prosper from the livestock of these idolatrous nations. They were to be totally, completely destroyed. All right, let's keep moving. I want you to skip ahead to Joshua 13. Joshua 13, verse 1. This too is going to be on the screen. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that remains. All the region of the Philistines and all those of the Jeshurites from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And those of the Avim in the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Mira that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise, from Belgad below Mount Hermon to Lebahamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Mishrabath Maim, uh, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So we fast-forwarded about a generation. And what we're seeing here is that so far, the people of Israel have been mostly faithful to the command we read in Deuteronomy 20. With a few exceptions, they've been faithful to destroy those nations that God commanded them to destroy. They've laid claim to the land, or a portion of the land, which they'd been promised. And so far, everything is going fairly well. But now Joshua, their faithful leader, is on his deathbed and God sends an angel to speak to him about what's to come. Basically, guys, the Lord's message to Joshua is simple. There's a lot more land for my people to possess and that land is inhabited by a number of wicked nations. Among them, he mentions the Geshurites and the Canaanites which is a blanket term that sort of encapsulates all the nations that reside in the southwest of the Promised Land. And after reviewing the land that remains in the possession of these wicked nations, God makes a promise. He says, I will myself drive them out from before the people of Israel. Now look, you have to pay very careful attention to that sentence because he doesn't merely say, I will drive them out, period. He says, I will drive them out, from before the people of Israel. And that implies that Israel will continue to go out to war against these wicked nations as they've been instructed to. And that God will faithfully and mightily move to drive these nations out before them. Alright, so we've got to keep moving. I want you to skip ahead to Judges 2. So look, as soon as Joshua dies, the people of Israel begin to stray from covenant faithfulness. 
Literally, the first chapter of Judges briefly, briefly recalls a handful of occasions where the people actually follow God's instructions to make war against the wicked nations that occupy the land. But after a few paragraphs, none of that faithfulness is left. From that point, the author of Judges begins to list all the tribes who were not faithful to destroy the wicked nations in the land. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Ephraim did not drive out the inhabitants. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. Tribe after tribe after tribe of covenant faithlessness. And here's God's response. Start in verse 1 of Judges 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacchim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted their voices and wept. So this is God's evaluation of the people's decision not to destroy the inhabitants of the land. This is God's response to their decision to refrain from totally destroying these wicked nations. When the people are faithful to this covenant, when the people of Israel are faithful to bring total destruction to the wicked, all of these wicked nations flee before them. Literally, these wicked nations see the wrath of God poured out on their neighbors and they flee for their lives, leaving the promised land empty. That's the original Intention. That's in in fact what God promised them. You obey me by making war against these inhabitants and I will drive them away from before you. That's the promise. But when the people are faithless to the covenant, that faithlessness is a snare to them. Because the people of Israel ignore the demands of the covenant that we just read in Deuteronomy 20. God responds by changing His disposition toward His people. He says, okay, fine. You want the nations, you'll have them. I won't drive them out before you. They'll stay. And they'll be a thorn in your side. They'll be a snare to you. That's how God relates to covenant faithlessness. That's how God responds when the people of Israel refuse to totally destroy the wicked nations of the land. And things don't get better from this point. They get worse. So we're going to skip way ahead to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. You can turn there, but it will also be up on the screen. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek 
and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So we've studied this passage closely in recent memory. But what you need to remember is that God has sent His prophet to anoint a young man named Saul to be king over Israel. And one of the first tasks He gives this young king is to fulfill the covenant mandate that the people of Israel were given that we just read in Deuteronomy 20. God speaks through Samuel and sends Saul on a mission to fulfill the mandate of Deuteronomy 20, which is to go and destroy Amalek, that wicked nation. And take note that Samuel reminds Saul exactly what he is expected, which is exactly what was articulated originally in Deuteronomy 20. He says, kill everything that breathes, even the livestock. But Saul, the young king of Israel, is just like the people of Israel And judges. Saul is just as covenant faithless because he refuses to remain faithful to the covenant. He refuses to honor the mandates of the covenant. Instead, he spares the king and he keeps the livestock as the spoils of war. And so God sends his prophet once more. And this is what he says. Pick it back up in verse 17. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul lost the kingdom that day. Saul lost the favor of God. And on this day, God promises to anoint a better man to be king over Israel. So how important is covenant faithfulness to God? How important is it to God that His people remain within the boundaries of the covenant? Listen to God's response to Saul's faithfulness. This is verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as, in, as, it, as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being king. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He also has rejected you from being king. That's how important covenant faithfulness is to God. Saul lost his kingdom because he ignored the boundaries of the covenant. And that's how the people knew that he wasn't the promised Messiah. What will the promised Messiah be like? What will the king who is to come be like? He will be perfectly faithful to the covenant. He will embody the covenant. Saul must not be him. We have to keep looking for him.
The promised Messiah will fulfill the law. He will protect the people and he will judge the wicked. And he will fulfill the law of God. Because the promised king to come, the the prophet like Moses, the promised Messiah will be faithful to the covenant. From this point, the people of Israel begin again to scan the horizon for the promised Messiah. And whispers are traded of a better man who will take the throne. Enter David, the young boy who defeated the giant and his army with only a sling and stones. The young man who led the armies of Israel to victory over and over and over again. Saul's most loyal bodyguard. David's victories are the stuff of legend and the people adore him. And as, as his fame rises, the people consider the ancient promises of a king who is faithful once again. And that kind of situates us perfectly in 1 Samuel 27. If you've been able to join us in recent months, you may remember that Saul has been chasing David and his associates all across the wilderness of Israel in jealousy. He does this because he knows that David is the anointed of God. And he knows that David is his rival to the throne. And this passage picks up after several narrow escapes from Saul's treachery. So I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel 27. We're going to read from verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day from the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the boundaries of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and his six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Moak, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow, And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Now, right off the bat, this passage begins with something unexpected. Because this seems a little bit like despair, right? Listen to his words again. Now, I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. And I get that feeling, right? Because he's been chased by a king and his army for months now. But that disposition is a far cry from the valor of the young shepherd boy who stared death in the eye and shouted of the might of God. He says, I shall perish. That doesn't sound like David. And we know that he won't perish, right? Because he's been promised. The word of God has come to him and decreed that he will be king over God's people, right? So here we find David in a state something like Despair, at least fear. And in that state, he's driven to the nations. Now, he's done this before, if you'll remember. He fled to the nations before, but it was in order to find a place of refuge for his family. But now we find David seeking a pagan king's protection in order to preserve his own life. Now, I'm not making judgments just yet, but this sort of disposition paired with this sort of action, ought to at least give you pause. 
Just keep moving. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns, that I might dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So David's company, which is about 600 men with their wives and children, that's quite a large group. And an influx, and an, <coughs> excuse me, an influx of migrants at this scale, even in the largest of ancient cities, would have, been, would have changed the dynamic of the economy and created loads of logistical issues. Can you imagine? Just imagine a relatively small town receiving several thousand people at once and their flocks. So David asked Achish, the king, for a territory of his own. Achish, who has in David a personal mercenary force led by the enemy of his greatest enemy, is pleased to find a permanent home for David's men. So for the next 16 months, David and his men operate out of Ziklag. Keep reading. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Jeshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep and the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish said, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to the people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. So from Ziklag, David and his men would raid villages. In fact, the text makes clear that they'd raid Jeshurite, Gerzite, and Amalekite villages. Now, it's important to remember the restrictions of Deuteronomy 20 here. Because probably the first thought that a covenant faithful Israelite would have had is whether these people are near cities or cities far away. Because there's a prescribed restriction on warfare in both cases. If these peoples qualified as distant cities, then David and his men are required. They're actually mandated by the restrictions of the covenant to offer terms of peace. If these people qualify as inhabitants of the land, they were required, mandated by the restrictions of the covenant, to totally destroy everything that lives and breathes. Now the good news is that this passage itself sort of answers that question for us. Because as soon as the Jeshurites, Gerzites, and Amalekites are mentioned, the author follows up with the words, 
For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old. Now that's a huge clue. And if you're a diligent reader, you might go back to the book of Joshua to confirm that the Jeshurites are named explicitly as inhabitants of the land and that the Gerzites and Amalekites dwell in an area whose people groups are sort of lumped together and labeled Canaanites. And if these connections aren't explicit enough, the author uses the very same terms to describe these people in this passage as he used to describe the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, which we just read, back when Saul broke the covenant. What I'm suggesting here is that the author has gone out of his way to make very clear that the Jeshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites are the ancient inhabitants of this land. In other words, they are the wicked nations which the people of Israel have been obligated to destroy. Totally destroy. The author is going out of his way to make sure you understand David's covenant obligations regarding these people. And he does this in three ways. One, he explicitly mentions that these nations are inhabitants of the land from of old. Two, he mentions the Jeshurites, who are one of the remaining nations listed in Joshua 13. And then three, he mentions the Amalekites and uses the same terms to describe them as he used in 1 Samuel 15, when Saul was explicitly told to destroy them and their livestock completely. So because we now know for sure that these peoples are among the wicked nations that the people of Israel was commanded to totally destroy, we now have a clear understanding of David's covenant obligations. Total destruction of everything that breathes as an expression of God's wrath against sin and as a measure of protection to keep God's people from straying into idolatry. But here's the thing. David's actions in this passage look a whole lot like Saul's actions in 1 Samuel 15. He destroys the inhabitants of the cities, yes. But he spares the livestock. And then we get an honest glimpse into his true motives in verse 11. Listen to this again. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. So look, we're told that David slaughters the inhabitants of these villages. But where we might expect to see that he did so as a zealous servant of God, eager to embody God's wrath against the wicked nations and eager to protect God's people from temptation to idolatry, where we might expect covenant faithfulness, instead the author gives us a glimpse into the violent and fearful heart of David. He kills every man and woman so that Achish would never know that he's been lying to him every day. So in a relatively short period of time, the author gives us a brief glimpse into the times that David lapses from covenant faithfulness. We know he's capable of brilliant expressions of faith. But here we get a glimpse of remaining sin in his heart. We get a sense of David's covenant faithlessness. And we'll see this covenant faithlessness on full display later on in Samuel's story. 
Here, at least, we're given hints that David's heart has strayed from covenant faithfulness. And we see this in a few ways. One, we're told that David has regularly lied to the pagan king despite God's law, which forbids false witness. Second, we're told that David has disobeyed the covenant mandate to destroy God's inhabitant, uh, to destroy the inhabitants of the land because he is driven by fear, not by zeal for the law. And third, we're told that David took the spoils of war from the inhabitants of the, of the land despite God's covenant restrictions. Now look, there are handful of readers who read David in this passage less critically than I, than I do. Some will recall at times that God made exceptions to His decree of total destruction. That happened sometimes by special revelation. I don't think that's what's happening here. But if you do, that's okay. And others will excuse David's deception as appropriate or even shrewd because this was a time of war. I'm not there. But if you are, that's okay. What you need to see, though, what nearly every commentary notes, regardless of how they fall on any of these particular issues, is that this is a portrait of David altogether different than the young, zealous, fervent shepherd boy shouting to his enemies of the might of God. David once stared death in the eye dismissing impossible odds because God is strong enough, God is capable enough, God cares about His great name enough to defeat the wicked and to protect His people regardless. That's not the portrait in this chapter. Regardless of how you land on any of David's actions in particular, In general, you must see that this portrait is not a portrait of the coming King, the promised Messiah, who heralds the glory of God while storming furiously toward the wicked in a bold act to protect His people. Because that Messiah is faithful and that Messiah is fearless. It's not enough to say that David is not that promised Messiah. I want to take a moment to tell you about the covenant faithfulness of the coming king who is the better David. The coming king will totally, finally, comprehensively judge the wicked. David's covenant faithfulness waned when it came to judgment. He didn't embody the wrath of God. He didn't represent God's hatred of wickedness when He struck the nations that inhabited the land. But the Son of David will return. And when He does, He will judge the wicked. And every moment you asked, how, Lord, could you allow this sort of wickedness? Every moment that you stared shell-shocked at the Rwandan genocide, or read statistics on sex slavery, or saw coverage of the trials of serial child molestation, or mass shootings, or chemical weapons, or spousal abuse, or divorce rates, or porn industry. Every moment that you cried out, How long, O Lord? 
Those moments are building and building and building until Christ returns when He will bring an end to the wicked and rescue His people from suffering and pain forever. Christ doesn't wane. Christ doesn't falter. His zeal for the righteousness of God. His zeal for the purity of creation. His zeal for justice and righteousness and love is never-ending. And He will return one day to ruin the wicked. If you, like me, have toyed with wickedness, if you, like me, have nightmares about your past, if you, like me, shudder to consider the dark corners of your desires, this is a warning. The Son of David will return and ruin the wicked. But there's hope for us in the cross. The coming King hopefully, perfectly, fearlessly fulfills the law. The only hope of the people of God is the covenant faithfulness of a substitute. That's our only hope. The wrath of God is stored up and will be poured out. Our only hope is in the Messiah who perfectly fulfills the law of God and is willing to trade that righteousness for our lawlessness. In order to redeem His people, God sent a perfect representative, a living, breathing embodiment of the law. And His righteousness shone hopefully, fearlessly, boldly, Jesus Christ walked in such righteousness that the broken were drawn to Him and the proud demanded His blood. Jesus knew the law and He followed the law and He lived and breathed and spoke the law. David's faith in the covenant waned. He feared death. He compromised the covenant for the spoils of war. But not the son of David. Jesus Christ, the Son of David, was perfectly faithful in order to save the faithless, like me and you. His was a spotless righteousness so that He might trade that righteousness for our wickedness. Amen? The Son of David stared death down with fire in His eyes, zealous to rescue His people. The coming King perfectly hopefully, fearlessly bears the wrath of God in redemption. The wrath of God is stored up for you just like it was stored up for those wicked nations of Canaan. You too have tempted God's wrath for years. You too were foolish, disobedient, led astray. Slaves to all sorts of passions and pleasures. Passing your days in malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. But the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Jesus is here to save you. Not because of your righteousness. Because of His righteousness. Jesus took the wrath that was owed to you and gave you the glory that was owed to Him. That's your only hope. Jesus Christ perfectly, hopefully, 
fearlessly bore the wrath of God on the cross to redeem a people who would not trust their own righteousness, but His. Now let's celebrate that work of redemption at the table. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.